0: listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Uh, my name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to welcome you to Sojourn this morning. Um, and just to reiterate what Nick invited us into at the very beginning of the gathering, if you are new here, or you've been coming around for a little while, we would love to get to know you. The best next step would be to meet us in the hallway at this map. We have a map of all of our communities. Um, and we'd love to, to kind of help you connect with one of those communities. We called them neighborhood parishes um, this morning. So, uh, meet us over there at the conclusion of our gathering, and we will hopefully be able to connect you. Um, well, that said, you uh, you just heard we we figured since last week we only tackled spiritual warfare that this week we would tackle sex. Um, that's a joke. Uh, it's simply the the fact is that simply the next te- the next text in this book that we're walking through. We've been walking through First Thessalonians, a letter um, that Paul wrote to the church, and this is. Um, this is just the next verse, and so we're, we're going to keep going. Um, so, in, in all seriousness, um, I do understand that talking about sex and and sexual impurity and sexual holiness—it's um, it, already difficult. It's difficult culturally. It's extremely difficult to talk about these things without um, offending or hurting some, even unintentionally, which is—it's certainly not my intention. Um, and and that's whether whether or not there's shame. Or history or, or feeling or identity or, or opinion in, in what you feel hurt with. And honestly, I just want you to know I'm with you. Um, I have sexual shame. I have a history of sexual sin. And so I, am, I count myself among you uh, of whom this is a sensitive topic. And so before I even begin, I want to ask for your grace. I want you to hear my heart, and my heart is primarily this, that I would please God that I would unpack this in an honest way, this text in an honest way that primarily pleases God. And secondarily, that I would be gentle and gracious and loving and patient and slow to unpack with that which is a tender issue um, for the church and for many of us in the room. That's my heart. And my heart for you is that that you would be gracious with me and also that as you encounter hard texts like this in your Bible reading, in your devotion, or in sermons and things like that, um, my encouragement to you is to discern what the Lord's saying with honesty and to aim to please God, to aim to please God as your primary uh, objective. And in doing so, remember that God is loving and gracious and honest and true. And I'll say this too, this is a letter written, the whole letter of First Thessalonians um, is written to the church. And in verse 11 of this text, which is not part of our text this morning, but um, it's a continuation of this section of text, uh, Paul instructs the church to mind their own affairs. And I think it's very much connected to this, this teaching on sexual ethic. I think Paul is saying, look, this is for the church, this is for you who are in Christ. This is for you, young church. This is a sexual ethic for you. He's not telling them, "Hey, take the church's sexual ethic, go outside of the church, and impose it on the culture." Right. So that I, we just have to be clear that that's not the instruction given. He's giving us a standard for inside the church, not outside the church. And the last verse this morning is uh, that we that Holly read, verse eight. Is, is Paul saying he anticipates maybe the Thessalonians' kind of uh, objections to this verse, but he anticipates ours as well, in that he says, this is not from man, it's from God. He says, this, this is not man-made. This is, this is what God said through the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so what God says is loving, and it's for our good, even if it's uncomfortable um, because of who we are or what, what could be our past And look, the first lie that Satan tells humans in the garden is a question. He says, did God really say? Or God surely did not say? Did God really say that that was bad? Did God really say that this was wrong? Did God really say that you can't do that? One of Satan's oldest and most effective tactics, therefore, is to get us to doubt God's word. Um, So, that being said, it's very appropriate for us to start with prayer, to pray that the Spirit would be among us um, and illuminate truth for us. So let me do that, and then we will walk in this together. Lord, we need you by your Holy Spirit. We need your, your presence. We need your grace. We need your truth. We need your comfort. Would you help us to discern what is true? Would you help us to walk in holiness as a people? Would you free us from feeling shame or guilt in this sermon or this morning? And instead, would you allow your easy yoke your freedom, the, the purchased freedom that you have bought for us through your death, um, would you allow that to, to define us as we walk forward? Lord, we love you. We need you. We pray for your presence to be poured out among us even more so than we believe it already has been. Um, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let me quickly remind us of what we've been reading as we've walked through this letter to the Thessalonians. Um, this is a young church in Thessalonica. There are, uh, there are new Christians as part of this church, and they've been doing really well in their city. Paul has written to encourage them. He's written them reminding them of the gospel, and he's been encouraging them to persevere in unity and love amidst the suffering and persecution and spiritual warfare that they're facing. So up until chapter four, the, the really first three chapters are just this long encouragement to the young church to keep going, to remember who they are in Christ, and this encouragement that they have become worthy of imitation in the way that they're following Jesus. And, uh, and now the letter changes, so it's been largely reminder and encouragement, and now it's going to change into um, Paul addressing three specific topics, sex, work and money, and death. And so the reason he does this, address sex and work and death and, uh, and, and those three things, it, I think is brilliant. It's, it's because in these three areas, Paul reminds them of God's will and in doing so shows them that they as Christians in Thessalonica, in these three realms, will be very different from the culture that surrounds them. Um, Here's an example. In death, Christians in the Roman Empire were going to be martyred. They were going to be killed or executed. And on the way, they were singing hymns. And the Romans were watching this and saying, what is going on? <laughs> like, what are these Christians doing? They, they seem to almost be in this euphoric state while they're going to death. What, like, what belief is causing this? And, uh, and when it comes to money and work and sex, um, the Roman way was this. Share your money with no one. But but engage in sex with everyone. Be, be liberal in your sex, um, but the Christian way with the, was the opposite, right? They said, no, no no, share your money with everybody. Share your share liberally. Work to make money and be generous. But but don't engage in sex freely. That is that is something different and holy and set apart. Um, put simply, by the historian Diognetus who was recording the Christian movement in Greece and Rome at the time, he said this, the Romans shared their bed with everybody but their table with no one. But Christians were called to do the opposite, share their tables with everyone and protect the bed. As Christianity spreads, so too does the Christian sex ethic. You can chart the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire by the illegality of sexual slavery. It's a beautiful, interesting fact that as Christianity spreads in Rome, you can chart its spread by Christian sex, or by sex slavery becoming illegal, um, and eventually the culture of Rome, which is a greedy financial culture and a very Promiscuous sexual culture caves in on itself, and among the reasons it does so is because of failed sexual ethic. Um, It's pretty interesting, and so regardless of your opinion on sex, we tend to think that we live in this in maybe the most sexually progressive era uh, in history. But that that might not be totally or completely true, because ancient Greece and ancient Rome in the first century when this letter was written was extremely progressive as it came to sex. This was their culture, men had the freedom to feed their sexual appetites like they fed their literal appetites. A typical man in Thessalonica would have this scenario. They'd have a wife with whom they had children um, who who took care of the home. They would have a uh, a mistress. The Greek word is hetera, and the mistress was like a, 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 a mental companion, so somebody who was like your mental equal, but they also would sleep with them. And then they had a concubine somebody who was purely used for sex, a woman purely used for sex. So the reality of all this is it was, it was really beneficial for the men in society, and all of it was really objectifying for women. And in fact, for men and women both, it was, it was crushing, it was a soul-crushing way to live. And the reason this was so radical and the reason this became so popular is because as women heard about the Christian sexual ethic, they started to say, oh, I want that. Leaders who were women in the Roman culture would say, I I want a sexual ethic that the Christians have, that honors women, does not treat them as objects, does not have three women for every man, as was typical. Instead, a sex ethic that valued a woman and a commitment. And so they started to say, what beliefs lead to this sexual ethic? What could possibly lead to that. And so when Christianity comes to Greece, it turns the city of Thessalonica upside down, and a sexual revolution comes with it. It's not like the 60s. In fact, it's quite different. Uh, It forces men to honor women, but far from pushing sex outside of the culture, it rightfully places sex in covenant marriage. This was radical at the time, but for men and women both, it caught on because it was not objectifying, it was humanizing. A humanizing view of sex for for really the first time in Roman history. So when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he's reminding these new Christians of the will of God, and he gives sex as this first example of how Christians should live differently regarding sex uh, and live differently than the culture that surrounds them. So let's read, uh, starting in verse one, it says this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, so first, I, uh, I've asked this a lot of times. You've probably asked this or prayed this or journaled this. We wonder, um, what is God's will for my life? But, but Paul clears it up very succinctly here. Paul says this, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification The word sanctification just means growing into the image of Christ, becoming like Jesus more and more and more, and therefore more righteous and more holy and more honoring of yourself and of others. So if you've wondered, it's clear now, what is God's will for my life? It's sanctification. And I know that doesn't exactly answer like what job should I take or what relationship should I pursue, um, things like that. But in those things, what is God's will for our life? Sanctification. And then he says this, here's one major way that we need to be sanctified to display our sanctification, that we abstain from sexual immorality. Let's go to the Greek there, because this is a a catch-all word that is used by Jesus. It's used by many of the apostles. It's the word porneia, and it's where we get the word pornography. It's a big catch-all for all sexual acts that are outside marriage between a man and a woman. The word is used by Jesus, used by other multiple uh, New Testament authors, and it it includes scenarios that go from incest and adultery. Uh, Jude uses it to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, and the word is used opposite as a definition of marriage that is defined by Jesus and appeals to Adam and Eve and the created order. So everything that is not a marriage between every sex act that is not in the context of marriage between a man and a woman is labeled here as sexual immorality as pornea, and that is the consistent biblical message and the his, the consistent historical message as we understand what and unpack what sexual immorality is. So this is, this is radical, because remember, like I said before, it prohibits extramarital sex, and in doing so, it honors women, and it honors men in limiting their sexual appetites, which is actually freeing for them. God's design for sex honors and frees us. It doesn't restrict us, even though our culture would look at the Christian sex ethic and say, um, wow, how, how oppressive is that? But remember, the Roman sex ethic was was very similar to our current sex ethic and it was a a revolution happened because the Christian sex ethic was more freeing, more honoring than the cultures around it. It's further radical because Paul says this, abstaining from sexual immorality is sanctifying and therefore, if that's true, so too is engaging in sexual morality if, sex, if abstaining from sexual immorality is sanctifying, then engaging in sexual morality is also sanctifying. That means celibacy is sanctifying. Sex inside marriage is sanctifying. It's not something that's just allowed. It changes us and makes us more like Jesus is what is being argued here. So let me work this out in our context. This is, this is a little hard to follow on its own. Um, I would argue that there are three dominant views of sex in our culture. Two are fairly historic, one is fairly new. Um, The first is this, it's the view of the Romans, that sex is is something that our bodies need. Um, Sexual release is like eating a sandwich when you're hungry, and so when you need to, just do it. It's a biological reality, and sexual release is simply a physical need. So that's the first view, that it's just a physical need. The second view is one that a lot of Christians have held recently, which is that sex is icky right? It's, it's shameful. It's something we should avoid. It's something that um, I might do with my spouse out of obligation, but we certainly don't talk about it. It's certainly not for sanctification. Um, think about purity culture. I think, I, I think a lot of y'all know what, what purity culture is, but something beautiful in purity culture is this wonderful desire for holiness. But in that pursuit, Often, shame and guilt and kind of this rejection of pleasure become a part of the culture as well. And so sex is tolerated, but it's not sanctifying. It's, it's kind of icky. So that's the second view, is sex as icky. And third, uh, the third view is newer in our context and culture, and it's this, that sex is not just a physical appetite that I need to meet, nor is sex icky, but my sexual life, my sexual desires is who I am. This is the newer view. Um, So sex isn't just a part of me. It's not just a part of my life. It's actually my my desire is my identity. So that's the third view. But but the Bible does not box sex into any one of these three categories, right? Think of the books, uh, books of the Bible like Song of Solomon, right? Song of Solomon or some of the Psalms and Proverbs. Certainly the New Testament authors celebrate sexuality and holiness, and they link them. The Bible doesn't hide sex, the Bible doesn't shove sex into a corner, nor does it treat it like some sort of physical thing that we should just figure out how to meet whenever we need to, nor does it elevate sex as an identity above our identity in Christ or as part of his body, the church. And so this moment in 1 Thessalonians is one of those moments where Paul is saying that it's God's will that sexual purity would sanctify us but what kind of sex sanctifies? Well, verse 4 says this, that each one of you knows how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. So sex that honors, sex that humanizes one another, is sex that sanctifies, not sex that objectifies or dishonors or degrades or is not committal. Like, so I just want to be clear here, marriage, like, Marriage doesn't magically make all sex within a marriage holy. Do we get that? Like marriage isn't the one context we need to just make all sex sanctifying. Marriage is the context for sex that sanctifies, but there is still more that's needed. This means sex in marriage is pure and sanctifying when it is mutual when it is not objectifying, when it is humanizing, sex that is consented to, sex that is mutually enjoyed, sex that is mutually desired, sex that is mutually self-sacrificing. In other words, sex that is fun and desired by both parties is sanctifying. No other religion does this unless it outright worships sex, and even then, when a religion tends to outright worship sex, sex becomes something very objectifying. But God says sex used rightly humanizes both parties. It's enjoyed by both parties, and it's ultimately something that will grow us in holiness. So that speaks to about half the room, but what if you are not married? The second method of abstaining from sexual impurity in a way that sanctifies us through celibacy, through not engaging in sex. And in Christian culture, and maybe even in our church, Married Christians are oft, often uh, seen as kind of like on this different level of Christian maturation, right? Like we, we say like, oh, well, they're, they're married and they're Christians, so they're kind of on the next level of Christian maturation. I'm single. I'm kind of on the level below. But this is not in the Bible. It's not a biblical approach to singleness. It's not what God has in mind for singleness, Um, I wanna be honest here and say, I think our church has room to grow in this area. I think I have room to grow in this area. I want our church to grow in this honoring understanding of singleness. And I think we have work to do. But if we look at 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the argument that singleness and celibacy along with it allow for one to be more focused on serving God and serving neighbor. He says the unmarried are anxious about how to please God, but the married are anxious about how to please their spouse. He doesn't condemn marriage, but he's saying, for those who are single, serve the Lord, love the Lord, be meaningfully part of community, and lead in your devotion to Jesus. But I don't want to be calloused here. I know this is so difficult. It's very difficult. But if you're single, I hope you would rest in this fact that the two two most prominent leaders in the New Testament church are Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And so I won't compare you to Jesus because he was God, but uh, <laughs> but the Apostle Paul wrote these words as a single man, and also as a single man, he accessed more joy and more contentment in the Lord than any of us have. I just think if we if we think about the way the Lord did ministry and the way Paul did ministry and look at them as our guides and examples, we would celebrate and honor singleness and and value singleness in our congregation more and more and more. So these are the two sanctifying options in avoiding sexual impurity and therefore walking in honor and holiness. They are consensual, self-sacrificing, and delightful sex in the context of marriage and celibacy that isn't second best, but instead is honored, uplifted, valued, seen, dignified, and celebrated. The reality is, Um, this, this sex ethic, this, this view of sanctification and sex is holistic and it's holistic in that it views the body and the soul in ways that mirror Christ and the incarnation when God became man. Here's what I mean. You'll have to stick with me for a moment. Let's go back to those three cultural views of sex and think about body and spirit, right? Like we, we went through the resurrected life series and we talked about how, um, Christianity places a huge importance on not only the spirit or the soul, but also the body, the physical body. And I would argue that the Christian sexual ethic is the only ethic of the one we've talked about that honors both of these things as well. Here's what I mean. If you look at sex as akin to appetite, if I'm hungry, I have a burger. If I'm sexually hungry, I should go find sexual release. Then sex is only related to our physical body. It's not related to our spirit or our soul or who we are at all. And therefore, it's just something physical, It's just something that appeals to my body. If we look at sex is primarily icky, we make the same error. Sex is only for procreation, it's only for making kids, and therefore it's not delightful, it doesn't strengthen a covenant bond, it's certainly not sanctifying, so it's just something we should do in private and never talk about. Um, in that scenario, sex is also relegated to just a physical thing, and there's nothing regarding the soul or the spirit that's delighted in or strengthened or sanctified in sex or if sex is our identity, then we've made the same error, or a different error, right? We've decided that there is no distinction between body and soul. So whatever my body wants is not just what my body wants, it's who I am, right? There's no distinction between body and spirit. My soul is who I am, is what my body desires. That's an error. But celibacy Honors both. Celibacy says my body is beautifully and wonderfully made. It bears the image of the creator God and it would rip my soul to give my body away freely. So instead, although it will be very difficult, I will give myself to the Lord and invite him to be my joy, pleasure, acceptance, and contentment. Likewise, sex in marriage allows married couples to delight in one another's wonderfully made bodies. Their souls will connect in joy Pleasure, acceptance, contentment. And as it does, it reflects what we all individually find in Christ. Sex in marriage is a shadow of what we find, who we find ourselves to be, fully known and fully accepted in Christ. The gospel of Jesus we've been kind of working out after Easter is so radical, in part because of the value it places on the created body and the resurrected soul. Right? So, like, think about baptism. At baptism, um, or, or when we become believers, we, we believe that spiritually what's going on is we died to our old selves and we rise in a new, with a new spirit, right? We believe that's what happens at conversion, that the, the, your old spirit dies and a new spirit, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us, but we also believe that the old man, the old woman, the flesh of our bodies is at war with the new spirit, But Christians also believe that when we physically die, there will come a time where Christ will return and our physical bodies will be resurrected into new creations and reunited with our spiritual selves. Right now, Christian in the room, your spirit is of God, but your body is of old. It's the old man or the old woman, and that's why it will decay and die. There will come a time where your body will fail, but also there will come a time where your body will be raised new and reunited with your new Holy Spirit. But for now, God's will for us is that we would be sanctified. Here's how Paul ends the letter again. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What is God's will for your life? Sanctification. How can we trust this? Because God is good. God is loving. God knows everything, created everything, and he said it. I, I just think it, it is divinely inspired that this verse exists in this context because Paul anticipated with the Thessalonians that there would be objections to this sexual ethic. And he says, this is not from man, this is from God. He, he, it's like divine in that he, they like God predicted our objections as well. Of like, wait, I'm just not sure, this doesn't seem right. God said it, is what Paul says. So we can trust that God is good and what he has said is for our good and for our sanctification. But I know that shame is pervasive. The enemy wants us to believe lies about ourselves. He wants us to believe lies about our pasts. He wants us to believe lies about sexual shame and sexual sin. He wants to use what God created for good, sex, to divide, discourage, and demean, and objectify, and dehumanize. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy John 10.10 says, so what should we do? Well, we should pray. We should be very prayerful. We should listen to God's word. We should wrestle with God's word and seek to understand it. We should pray more and more and more. We should utilize our renewal groups. This is a great opportunity for your renewal group, which is where we at Sojourn walk in accountability. We can come together as brothers or sisters and bring sexual sin into the light and therefore put it to death. We can confess it can confess to brothers and sisters. And the most, the most crucial part of our confession to brothers and sisters in the church is this, that we would be told that we are forgiven. There's no room for the confession of sin at sojourn that isn't also met with a reminder that you are forgiven in Christ. That the sexual shame you carry can and will be released because Christ's perfection, including his purity, is counted to you who are his sons and daughters. That means if you're a Christian in the room, you are royalty. Your father is the king and his purity is your purity right now. And what does God want us to do with that freedom, with that purity? His will for us is this, sanctification, honor, Holiness, walk in what has been purchased for us. Freedom from this sin. Like I said at the beginning, I just want to remind us that this was written to the church and Paul in a couple verses that we're going to walk through next week will say, like, this is for you. This is for you who are new to the church or in the church. He's writing to new Christians and he's saying, we are to be holy and set apart in a way that doesn't condemn the culture around us, but in a way that captivates the culture around us. This sexual ethic for Rome was captivating. As we come to the table here in a moment, one thing we remember weekly is that the spirit of God met the body of Jesus, right? We, re- we remember that God himself dwelled in a real body and right now Jesus is in a physical resurrected body. Remember the body of God that was broken, the blood of God that was poured out and when we feast on this body and blood, we, we talk about this every week. This is why we do this every week, because every week we need to be reminded of the cost, but also what he bought. Not only do we remember the, the great cost that our God went through on our behalf, we remember what he purchased. That's where we dwell. Any, any, any trip to the table that makes you just feel really, really ashamed of your sin because of what Christ had to go to to free you isn't complete. We have to transition to dwelling on I am, Revelation calls it the Lamb's book of life. My name is in the book of God because of the price he paid as pure. There's no sin attached to my name because of what Christ has done on my behalf. Isn't that wonderful news? It's true right now for Christians in the room. And at the table, we, we also get to reflect on this fact that we too have a body and we have a spirit. And they are at conflict with each other. But, but even if there's conflict, we need to remember this, that our body and our spirit is worthy of honor, worthy of dignity, worthy of commitment, worthy of love, worthy because Christ has, by his blood and body, purchased for you this worthiness, holiness, and wholeness. One of the beauties that we have to offer as Christians to the world is a complete picture of flourishing body and soul. Let's pray as we come to the table and remember that this morning.